You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church. It is so good to be here with you this morning. My name's Nate Walbrook. I serve here on the worship team at Life Church Livonia. And I have the privilege today to discuss the book of Psalms with you. Uh, as many of you are aware, we've been talking about Psalms together over the last few weeks. We talked about grief in Psalm 22. We talked about peace in Psalm 23. Bob went rogue on Psalm 25. And uh, last week we talked about repentance in Psalm 51. And today I get to talk to you about Psalm 88, which covers the beautiful, joyful, amazing topic of darkness. And I cannot wait. A couple years ago, my wife Rachel and I, we moved here from Minnesota to Michigan, and uh, I was filled with a lot of different emotions, a lot of different thoughts. I was filled with fear. I was filled with sadness over leaving friends and family. I was filled with wonder. I was hopeful for the new opportunity. Um, I had a lot of questions. What does my future hold? I had to find a job. We moved here without me having a job. And I had this question, God, I wonder what's in this next season of life for us. And it's too much to explain in this sermon, that's for sure. What I thought was going to be this beautiful season of new beginnings and new adventures uh, quickly turned into easily one of the most challenging and hardest seasons of my life. Um, I've had to learn to be married. It's been this constant death to selfishness over the last few years. Uh, when they say that marriage is this gift of refinement, oh my goodness, is that super true. Um, I've just had to navigate a lot of uh different things that I just didn't even know were going on underneath the surface for me. We joined a new church. We had to get plugged in with a brand new community, um, a completely new network of people for both of us, both inside and outside of church. And, you know, on top of that, when you're trying to make all these new friends and establish yourself in this new community, you have all these unhealthy habits and different rhythms of life that you are working on at the same time. So it has just totally been this season of refinement for me while I've been here in Michigan. And you think about growth and you think about how beautiful that is, um, but it also just totally stretches you and it's a painful yet a wonderful thing simultaneously. And it's, and it's combined to be one of the hardest seasons of my life, but it's also been one of the best seasons of my life because it's one of those things where the, the experiences and the things that you're growing and learning through that pain, I just wouldn't change it. I would rather learn that now than figure it out later. And so, Dark seasons, darkness, these are inevitable. Uh, we all experience them. They're a normal part of life for each of us. And in St. John of the Cross's book, which many of you are familiar with, The Dark Night of the Soul, we see that these seasons of darkness are even part of how God forms and shapes us into the likeness of Jesus. It's kind of how he grabs our attention sometimes. And we can let these seasons build us up or we can let them break us down. And uh, regardless, it's, it's inevitable, but one thing's gonna happen when you experience a season of darkness. And dark seasons can show themselves in a lot of different ways for all of us here together in this community. Uh, maybe for you, it looks like getting laid off from your job unexpectedly, or maybe you're wondering how you're gonna provide for your family and their needs, or maybe you're struggling to build and raise a family or you have large questions about your future and your purpose and you feel stuck in what you're doing right now. Or maybe you were served divorce papers you didn't want to get served or you had to serve the divorce papers that you didn't want to serve. 
Uh, maybe you're a student and you're struggling with lots of questions about your grades and your future and what career do you want to go into? How do you find out what you're even interested in? Uh, you know, what should you pursue and how should you do it? Or you've just retired. Maybe you've just retired and this season of life is totally different. You've been in a career for 30 to 40 years and, and now you have friends and family who are all trying to figure out this new season of retirement and there's death and there's loss and people change and die and it's just a new, different season to navigate. And all of these are deep struggles. These are dark cries of the soul. And we're not alone in these cries. And that's what we're going to see together as we read Psalm 88, is that um, this psalm is written from a dark place of life. And my hope is that by walking through that together today, um, that we can discover what it looks like to approach God in that dark season of life that we're experiencing. So let's begin by reading the psalm together. If you can pull out your Bibles with me. We'll start with the intro. And the intro reads, For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah, a song to be sung to the tune of the suffering of affliction, a psalm of Heman the Ezraite. So whenever we read the Bible together, it's important to ask questions about the context of what we're reading. Who wrote this? When was it written? Why was it written? So we'll start. Who wrote this? This psalm is written by Heman, who is a son of Korah. Who's Korah? Some of you may ask. Quick summary, he was from the tribe of Levi. His story is primarily told in the book of Numbers. Um, and after God saved his people in the Exodus, the Israelites are out in the wilderness. Uh, he created this, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and he set the Levites aside um, to basically be caretakers. They were set apart from the other tribes, and uh, they, wanted, they, they were set aside to take care of the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant. And I like to summarize them as the facility staff of the tabernacle. And so Korah is a Levite, and he instigates a rebellion against Moses and Aaron while they're out in the desert because of everything that they're experiencing. And it didn't end well. God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and his family into it. And uh, I've always found it personally interesting that with this disgraceful history of Korah, that you see Korah's name referred to elsewhere in scripture. Uh, you know, we're, we just read it now, the sons of Korah are referred to as the sons of Korah. You think they would scratch that connection with that disgraceful history, but here we are. And that's, that's another sermon. We can dive into that if you're curious another time, but um, it's very interesting. But all you need to know with this with Heman is that he's a Levite, which means that he's essentially like a worship leader or a priest for the Jewish people. And, um, and we just read it here at the beginning of the psalm in the intro. This is a song to be sung to the tune of suffering and of affliction for the choir director. And that's important information, so just tuck that away, and we'll come back to that later. So when was it written and why? The psalm also mentions that Heman is an Ezraite, and we know that with the book of Ezra, that Ezra was a leader among the exiled Israelites. Um, he was appointed by the king of Persia to bring another wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem after the captivity had ended around 400 BCE. And so if Heman is an Ezraite, most likely based on just the timing and the years, uh, Heman was born in the exile. And that's really important for context of uh, how did Heman grow up? What is his life experience like? And what does it look like for him to serve the, the community that he's a part of? And so uh, put yourself in the shoes of little boy Heman, right? You're a good Israelite and you're reading your Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. 
and you're reading about <clears throat> Moses giving this warning to your people. Moses says, if you're obedient, God will bless you and he will deliver you in the promised land and, uh, you know, bless you as a nation. And if you're disobedient, woe be to you, God's wrath will be upon you and he'll give you over to your enemies. And you see that echoed all throughout scripture when you read the Old Testament. And so now you're Heman, you're a boy, and you're in Babylon. And so you're looking around and you're like, wait, like we're in the middle of this punishment. We're in the middle of the warning that Moses gave in the Torah. And we're experiencing the consequences of being sinful as a people. And so that's like, that's your active reality is that active punishment together as a community. And you know that you're dealing with the effects of the sins of your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents and all their friends and family. And that's the reality of what you know. And so now you're older, you're human and you're, uh, you're a leader within the church, you're leading the community. And you have that younger generation who's been born in the exile. And then you have an older generation who knows what the promised land was right. So think of that dichotomy within your community. You have this generation who knows what the promised land's like. Uh, they know what the temple of Solomon is like. They know what the beauty of the kingdom of David is like. They know that land of milk and honey, and now they're rejected from it. They are dispersed and they're not allowed back. And so you probably have this generation that's grumbling and it's like, oh man, do you remember the good old days? And I'm gonna die out here. I'm gonna die in exile before God ever answers this promise of bringing our people back, if God ever answers this promise of bringing our people back. So this is that context, and that's dark. That's a dark backdrop with this psalm that is being written. That's a song, you know? And so you're a leader within this church community, and, and you have two generations or two sets of people within your community that have completely different experiences that are dealing with this darkness and this frustration and this like brokenness in, in unique yet communal ways together. And that's what you're trying to faithfully serve. So I think this is really important context before we even start to read this psalm together. Um, but now, like, ask yourself questions about the context of what we're reading. What feelings or emotions do you think Heman and the community might be feeling when we read these words? This is a dark season in the histories of God, history of God's people. And it's filled with mourning as they long for this future promise that hasn't happened yet. So let's begin uh, by reading verse one. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. So day and night, I cry out to you, AKA all the time. I'm crying out to you, Lord, all the time. This prayer is consistent. This is whatever we're about to read. These are thoughts that are often on Heman's mind. And he's praising God here. It starts with the praise, or at least it's a, a statement or an appeal to God's character saying, Lord, you are someone who saves. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we could use some saving right now. So Lord, hey, you're the one who saves. Please hear my cry and pay attention to us and be true to your character, Lord, as someone who saves. So verse two, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. So whatever's going on, uh, it's unbearable. This goes beyond the basic struggles that you or I might expect to deal with on a week-to-week -week basis. This would be like someone coming up to you in church and asking how you're doing, and you're like, I'm fine, because it's so much easier to just tell you I'm fine than really tell you what's go <laughs> going on behind the scenes. 
And this leaves us with questions. What's going on? What are the obstacles that Heman or his community is facing? Where is God in it? And is God listening? Let's continue with verse 4. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like the one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. So there's a lot here. We're starting to get into the meat of this chapter. And in verse 4, he says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. And we know that Hebrew people did not have the same understanding of heaven and hell that we do today based on uh, Jesus. And so it's like the author is saying, my life is hell, or my life makes me feel like I'm trapped in hell, or maybe, uh, God, why do you let me experience this hell on earth? Where are you in all of this? And I think it's important to remember (laughs) that this is a song. And so I love you all so much that I'm going to do something that neither of us want. I am going to sing this for you. This is my Silly Songs with Larry moment of the sermon because I care for you. So we'll start with verse 5. We're going to sing it to like Silent Night. Uh, I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more. who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. <laughs> I, I know you're clapping behind the screen, so I'll take a bow. And uh, we're, I'm going to talk with Marissa and see if she can add that to the song rotation, because I want to see like someone else's cover of that within the church. You know, we got to get that in our rotation. But now, I know, I know, I just, uh, I just broke it up. I just did that jokingly, and uh, that's funny and all, but they did this for real, and that's the point that I'm trying to prove. And talk about being honest, you know? Like, Lord, you have put me in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. I am in the lowest pit. And uh, I just sang about it, but these verses are intense. And this is also, like, I read this on, I, I sang this for you on purpose, But this is where the blaming starts within these verses, you know. In verse 1, we read, read, God, you are the one who saves me. But here we read, God, you have put me in the lowest pits. Verse 6, verse 7, your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. And that's quite the shift. One moment where we have this appeal to God's saving character. And the next thing, we're stuck in this turmoil and we're like, God, what's your problem? Why are you doing this to me? And it's blaming. It's like your turmoil is like, now this is God's fault. You know, they feel like God's wrath is lying heavily upon them. So let's continue with the end of verse six or verse nine. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known 
in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion. Now, something I really like to do when I'm studying scripture, and especially preparing for a sermon like this, is I like to read other translations. I like to listen to other translations. And I also like to um, listen to other paraphrases. And I'm a really personal big fan of the message paraphrase. And so I'm going to read that for you because I think it does a beautiful job kind of putting these thoughts and these themes in, um, yeah, another paraphrase, another set, you know, another way to listen to it. So, So this is what it says. I call to you, God, all day I call. I wring my hands. I plead for help. Are the dead a live audience for your miracles? Do ghosts ever join the choirs that praise you? Does your love make any difference in a graveyard? Is your faithful presence noticed in the corridors of hell? Are your marvelous wonders ever seen in the dark, your righteous ways noticed in the land of no memory? What do you think? Have you ever felt like this? What do you think of when you read that paraphrase? God, does your love make any difference in a graveyard? I know that I felt this before. I felt this at different points in my life. And I, I can think of this couple of years span in college where I was leading worship um, and I was walking back to my dorm. I was walking through this brick hallway in my college and I remember like praying to God and I felt like I was praying to that brick wall in front of me. You know, that's what, that's what my experience was. My prayers to me were met with nothing. They were met with silence. And that's what I felt in that moment. That was my reality. Uh, whether God was answering me or not in that moment, I couldn't see it. And I didn't have the slightest clue what God was doing or what he wanted with me in that moment. And to me, it felt like a lot what we just read. Lord, does your love make any difference in a graveyard? What does it matter if I can't feel it? And I feel like that's what the author is screaming. God, who cares that you're good? What difference does it make with this reality that I'm living in? How can you be good when my reality feels only bad? Where is goodness and joy when all I see in my life is suffering and darkness? And it's like the author is saying, Lord, I'm done. I'm wiped. I'm at the end of my rope. I cannot do this anymore. So let's go back to NIV, starting with uh, verse 13. We'll finish it out. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This has been uh, discussed in previous weeks, but Psalms means praise book. Praise book? Praise book? What did we just read? This is a praise book? Psalms is a book of praise towards God, but what did we just read? This obviously does not shy away from the realities of the human experience at all. And I think it's just evident with what we read. These are some brutally honest questions, reflections, maybe even accusations towards God. And we're at the end of this chapter, and uh, we're at the end of this passage, and there's no happy ending. It's one of the only two psalms that we read in Scripture that doesn't have that happy ending moment at the end of it. There's no 
but God, I know you're good and I know you love me and you're going to deliver me for sure. Nope. Instead, it ends with darkness is my closest friend. And this was uh, big for me. And I've explained it a little bit already, but this was meant to be sung together as a community. Heman is a worship leader with his community. And so that means that this is written as corporate worship. This is not a diary entry. These are communal feelings. These are feelings of extreme grief, likely that this community is feeling because of this exile experience that they're in. And it's a public mourning that we're meant to reflect on together. And so to me, the next questions are, now what? What what are we supposed to do with this? Why is this even in the Bible? Is this level of honesty a good thing? What happened to the Israelites after they prayed this? Like, what does this mean for them? What does this mean for us? What are we supposed to take away from this with our relationship with God? And uh, let, me, let me answer those questions with another question. What kind of relationship do you have when uh, you can express all your fear, you can express all your grief, you can express all your sadness, all your frustration, where you're honestly at, and still feel safe. What kind of relationship do you have? To me, that kind of relationship is an intimate one. It results in an intimacy with God. And I think of intimacy as being known, being seen. You're not hiding. You're open with where you're at, and that honesty is safe. And, and God or someone else or whoever you're experiencing this intimacy with, they know what's honestly going on with you and they stick around for it. They're not going anywhere because of what you're expressing. The reality of who you are doesn't change the fact that you're still friends, that you're still spouses, that you're still family, that you're still friends, you know, that you're not going anywhere because of the context of what you're expressing or what you're feeling or where you're at or what, you know, how unhealthy are you the context doesn't matter. They're not going anywhere. And ask yourself this question. What do you think God wants in a relationship with you? I think that God wants you to know that you're safe. You're safe to be open about where you're at. He wants you to be honest with what you're feeling and what you're thinking about and bring that to him because he already knows he already knows what's going on with you. He knows what's going on with you better than you know what's going on with you. And he wants you to come to him with it, not go somewhere else to something else or to somebody else. He wants to be the safe place for what's going on. And to me, that's like by far the coolest part about this psalm is that this was open in the community and it was a prayer that was meant for God, even though the suffering's deep, even though it's accusational, even though the author doesn't understand why is God allowing the suffering? God, are you even going to deliver us from this exile? And think about the reality of those questions and what we just read, right? Maybe another benefit of true intimacy is that it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be wrong with your honesty. And I'm not necessarily saying that Heman is wrong here, but I at least know for me that when I'm open and honest with my raw emotions, often I'm wrong. So I'll just speak for myself. But in an intimate and honest, open relationship, you are safe to be honest and you are safe to be wrong. And I think that's a key 
takeaway of Psalm 88. If you walk away with one thing, just remember that it's like God desires intimacy with you. And he knows you. He wants you to feel known in his relationship with you. And uh, think about the reality of relationships. Real relationships are messy. Wrong things are said. Hurtful things are experienced. Beliefs change. We change. Growth happens. We say the wrong thing. We're always learning. And think about it. We often learn the most from our mistakes. And it takes time to mature and change. And so God is this perfect, approachable father in this relationship with you where it's safe to make a mistake and still know, yep, I'm super loved by my father. And that's like powerful. That's a powerful truth that you can proclaim over your life. And so now think of God as this perfect father. And in an ideal parent-child relationship, uh, ideally you have a healthy, mature parent who is able to take their um, uh, child's emotional swings in stride, right? It's not going to affect them. Uh, And we know that God is this ideal parent to us. God's emotions are not dependent on our emotional state. They're certainly not dependent on us approaching him in prayer the perfect way. Can you imagine if we had to spend a half hour thinking about our prayer before we could even approach God with it because we didn't want to say the wrong thing or we got to say it perfectly? It's like that's just not who our father is in this relationship that we have with him. And I love to think of God as someone who is really hard to offend and really quick to give grace, especially, especially in light of the gospel and who we know Jesus to be and what he did for us. That totally transforms and changes the equation. And uh, I have kind of a fun example for you. So has anyone ever heard of the rage cage? Um, I didn't hear about it until this last year. It's pretty cool. There's one out in New York City. We're going to throw up some pictures for you. I think there might be one in Detroit. I'm not sure. We can check on that. But you book this room for like 20 to 30 minutes, and they give you some electronic devices like an old VCR player or TVs, and you pay for like 10 or 20 plates or something, and they give you a baseball bat or a sledgehammer, and they say, cool, go to town. And (laughs) I think it's hilarious. I think it's brilliant. I definitely want to try it. Um, And it's referred to online when you go and you check their description. It's like, come to the therapeutic anger room, a place to de-stress and have fun. (laughs) So so you let your rage out in a healthy uh, and controlled environment instead of like at home with your real kitchen, you know? (laughs) And I I think it's cool. And bear with me here. I like to think of God as like the perfect rage cage. And... (laughs) (laughs) that's a place with like a lot of grace and it's a place with safety, right? It's like the safe place to deal with those plates that you've been waiting to break, right? God is a safe place to process what's raw and honest and intense with inside you. And uh, it's a place where you can let it go with God, you know, somebody else uh, who, who understands, God who understands. And you can let that go with God instead of on someone else or something else or even yourself. Uh, When you're angry, let that go with God. Don't let that go on your wife or husband. When you feel shame, bring those feelings and those needs to God instead of letting them go on your kids. When you feel like you're not enough, you're not doing enough, and you struggle with this, bring that struggle to God instead of beating yourself up all day saying, what's wrong with me? We don't always realize it, but one way or another, whatever is inside of us is going to come out. And so how do we let those feelings go? in a healthy way? How do we let them go in the rage cage? And I know for me, personally, I journal. 
And um, journaling is a really powerful and beautiful thing to me. I've just found this to be super helpful in my walk. I found it to be super helpful in my life. I carry this journal with me almost everywhere that I go. And um, when I have these different struggles, let's say I'm struggling with shame, I'm struggling with anger, I'm struggling with worry, worry, whatever that is, and I have these needs, I pray about it and I journal about it. I open this journal up at work, I open this journal up at home, and I just start to write down unfiltered raw what's going on inside of me. And it gives me a place to just get it out of my head, put it on the paper, and I'm praying at the same time. I'm saying, Lord, I choose to give this to you. I'm really struggling with shame today. Lord, I just, I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like there's something like crazy wrong with me. Lord, will you help me? And then what journaling does for me, that rage cage, that place to process it, is you get really curious with what's going on. What even brought you to the rage cage that day? You know, I'm journaling. I'm saying, Lord, I'm feeling shame. And then I'm getting really curious. I'm saying, well, why am I feeling shame? Okay, well, I'm feeling shame because of this. What is this saying about me? Okay, well, why do I think this is saying this about me? What is true about me? Okay, well, what's this need that I need to meet? Okay, well, what, how, how do I meet that need in a healthy way? Okay, well, what does the Lord say about meeting that need in a healthy way? Okay, well, what does the Lord say about me? What does this say about who I am? And I just like go through and I just spend time meditating with the Lord. And I spend time reflecting and I slow down and I give it a chance to settle and I process it. And I, I think of that like an offering to the Lord. And to me, it's like, it's, it's beautiful. I think, I think it goes hand in hand with what we just read together in the psalm, that the psalm is a raw processing of what's going on inside and just bringing that to the Lord because it is the Lord's and the Lord is big enough for it and he's a safe place to bring it to him. And so uh, maybe journaling is helpful for you. If that's something that you're interested in, you can do it. I would totally recommend it. It's been, it's been a big difference maker for me in my walk. And so... Some of you may be thinking right now, like, cool, Nate, that's great. Uh, you're talking about dark things. Yeah, you're talking about shame. You're talking about this. But, uh, Nate, I have some, like, huge questions. And I'm, I'm experiencing, like, a really dark night of the soul. And I bet I could get you with a tough enough question right now that you couldn't answer. And I don't feel like journaling is going to help with that. And, you know, I've been praying about this to God, and I, I haven't gotten an answer yet either. And if that's you, and this like struggle is something you're feeling, this is like a really good quote I found, and I want to leave you this with this. This quote comes from Michael Wilcock. He's a director of pastoral studies at Trinity College in Bristol. And he did a commentary on Psalm 88, and this is what he said. And when he's referring to this, this darkness, he's referring to Psalm 88's darkness. He says, this darkness can happen to a believer, this psalm says. It doesn't mean you're lost. This darkness can happen to someone who does not deserve it. After all, it happened to Jesus. This doesn't mean you've strayed. This darkness can happen at any time as long as this world lasts because only in the next world will such things be done away with. This darkness can happen without you knowing why, but there are answers, there is a purpose, and eventually you will know it. And like Michael said, we know this darkness did happen. It happened to Jesus. But you know what else we know? We know that the story doesn't end there. Jesus entered into this darkness, this true darkness, and the separation from God so that you and I didn't have to. And we know that we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. The penalty for this sin 
is death and separation from God. We know that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and lived a perfect life, one without sin. And we know that Jesus died on the cross and then rose again three days later. And Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sins. And all we have to do is believe in him and we will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus experienced this darkness so that you and I didn't have to. So that our story didn't have to end with it. Jesus experienced pain and suffering so that you know that yours is only temporary. He gives us a truth that we can put our faith in that no matter how much this life can rot, it is temporary. And when it does rot, he wants you to go to him with it. Psalm 88, go to God with it in intimacy and safety. He wants you to know that you're safe and that it's literally considered praiseworthy, a song of praise to run to God with it. It's worship when we run to God with our darkness and our pain. And he wants you to know that your story will not end with pain. Your story can end with rejuvenation and healing, with joyful reunification with the God who loves you, who knows you, if you accept this gift of Jesus. God wants you, and he wants a relationship with you, and he wants a real relationship with you, one where uh, you're there together in all of it. He wants to process the joyful moments with you, and he wants to process the dark moments with you, and he wants to do it together. God wants intimacy with you. So, Lord, we just approach you in prayer today. Lord, you're so good. Your love endures forever. It is just who you are. You are the God who saves. Lord, we thank you for who you are, the reality and truth of who you are, and how you love us and how you pursue us, Lord. The fact that you want this real relationship with you, Lord, that's such a gift and that's such a blessing. And Lord, we thank you for the beauty and uh, the beauty of this gift of the gospel, that this is good news. And all we need to do is accept it and believe in you, Lord Jesus, that sin has lost its power over us, that you have paid the penalty for this darkness, for our sin, that we don't have to remain in exile anymore, Lord. We just have to say, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe in this promise. Lord, deliver me and bring me back to the promised land. And Lord, we choose to just say yes today. We choose to say yes with an honest relationship where we bring where we're at with you because we know that you already know it and that you want to walk through that with us, Lord. We praise you. You're such a mentor for us, Lord. You're so wise. We praise that about who you are, Lord. You're the great counselor. And uh, Lord, it's a gift to just have this time together with you today. Thank you for this church and thank you for this community. Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. If you just prayed that prayer with me and you accepted Jesus to be a part of your life today, I just really encourage you to reach out to us. Reach out to us via the connection card. Let us know so that we can come alongside together with you as a community and encourage you in this process and the step of faith that you're taking. Thanks so much for being here today with me. We'll see you next week.